Chapter 10, The Doctrine of Grace In Pelagianism, humanism came to the fore with its doctrine of man. Pelagius frankly and plainly asserted the plenary ability of man to live without sin. I say that man is able to be without sin, and that he is able to keep the commandments of God. Pelagius held, first, that all might be sinless if they choose. And many had been so. Second, each man is born without any impediment or entailment of sin or moral weakness from Adam or his ancestors. Third, man therefore has no need for divine grace in overcoming sin. As Matheson noted, paganism knows nothing of sin. It knows only of sins. It has no conception of the principle of evil. It comprehends only a collection of evil acts. Warfield added, this is Pelagianism too. The British monk Pelagius, who was the exponent of this form of humanism, is said to have been originally named Morgan. The times of his birth and death are not known, but he appeared in Rome around 400 and began to teach his doctrines. The great champion of orthodoxy against Pelagianism was St. Augustine. Since it is outside our purpose to analyze the controversies as such, and the men and writings involved, but rather the creedal and conciliar movements, the great work of St. Augustine cannot be discussed here. The council which confronted Pelagianism was the Second Synod at Orange, Arusio, in southern Gaul, July 3, 529. This council has been called a victory of semi-Augustinianism by Schaff, and this is largely true, but because it was a victory of semi-Augustinianism, it was also a victory for semi-Pelagianism. The text of the 25 canons appears in Leith, and summaries of the canons with the full Latin text are to be found in Hephalel. Landon's summary gives the essential point of these 25 canons more briefly by summarizing the key ones. 1. Condemns those who maintain that the sin of Adam has affected only the body of man by rendering it mortal, but has not affected the soul also. 2. Condemns those who maintain that the sin of Adam hath injured himself only, or that the death of the body is the only effect of his transgression, which has descended to his posterity. 3. Condemns those who teach that grace is given in answer to the prayer of man, and who deny that it is through grace that he is brought to pray at all. 4. Condemns those who teach that God waits for our wish before purifying us from sin, and that he does not by his Spirit give us the wish to be purified. 5. Condemns those who maintain that the act of faith, by which we believe in him who justifieth, is not the work of grace, but that we are capable of doing so ourselves. 6. Condemns those who maintain that man can think or do anything good, as far as his salvation is concerned, without grace. 7. Condemns those who maintain that some come to the grace of baptism by their own free will, and others by the supernatural help of divine mercy. The 18 other canons are essentially sentences taken from the works of St. Augustine and Prosper. Three propositions were appended to the 25 canons, holding 1. That all baptized persons can, if they will, work out their salvation. 2. That God hath predestined no one to damnation. 3. That God, by his grace, gives to us the first beginning of faith and charity, and that he is the author of our conversion. The council, thus, was in some respect a retreat. The victories won by Augustine and his followers were weakened. Fisher's comment is pertinent. 
The council asserted the necessity of prevenient grace and the necessity of grace at every stage of the soul's renewal and affirmed that unmerited grace precedes meritorious works, that all good, including love to God, is God's gift, that even unfallen man is in need of grace. But not only is predestination to sin denied, but there is no affirmation of unconditional election or irresistible grace. Moreover, free will is said to be weakened in Adam and restored through the grace of baptism. The creed is anti-Pelagian, but the tenets of semi-Pelagianism are only in part explicitly condemned. It was sanctioned by the Roman bishop Boniface II. Even more, since Augustine had clearly asserted double election to damnation and to salvation, Augustine himself was in effect condemned by the Council of Orange. Strict Augustinianism had its adherents in the latter centuries, men such as Bede, Alcuin, and Isidore of Seville, but the church steadily moved away from Augustinianism until the Reformation. The consequences were far-reaching. Pelagianism is essentially the assertion of man's ability to save himself. It is a belief that man does not need God to attain the perfect life. The implications of this doctrine for both church and state, as well as for every other sphere, are very great. If man is able, then the state, the church, and the university are able to save man. In political theory, Pelagianism has meant that the state is not restricted to the role of a ministry of justice. The state becomes man's mediator and savior. The Pelagian state offers cradle-to-grave security. It faces every problem in the confidence that, given sufficient time and power, it will provide the answer. The Pelagian state is confident that it can abolish sickness and disease, poverty and hunger, crime and lawlessness, and through nationalized science, possibly even death itself. Pelagianism asserts the plenary ability of man to save himself, and the Pelagian state believes in the plenary power of the state to save man and to create a paradise on earth. Because the Pelagian state believes in its plenary ability, it works to seize the plenary power which it holds is necessary for the exercise of its abilities and plans. As a result, Pelagianism in politics is inescapably totalitarian. It cannot place any brakes on the state, nor can it be justifiably suspicious of the state since it has no real doctrine of sin, only a catalog of sinful acts. The decline of the doctrine of sovereign grace is marked by the rise of the sovereign state. Pelagianism in ecclesiology, with respect to the doctrine of the church, again has far-reaching consequences. The church of the mediator makes itself the mediator progressively as Pelagianism develops. The authority and sovereignty which properly belong to Christ begin to accrue to the Pelagian church and the infallibility of Christ and his inscriptured word are progressively transferred to the church. The Pelagian church weakens the dependence of men on God and his grace and increases their dependence on the institution of the church. Grace and power are transferred from Christ's work to the church's work, and the church progressively becomes the saving power and the saving society. Interest in Orthodox Christology wanes, and interest in Pelagian ecclesiology increases. Because the power recognized by the Pelagian Church is essentially human power, it seeks to aggrandize human power. This is done in two ways. First, the Pelagian Church seeks numerical strength by union with other Pelagian churches and by laxer standards in order to present a strong front in terms of human reckoning. Second, 
The Pelagian Church seeks power by an alliance with the state. Its goal is essentially the same, a paradise on earth by human effort. And accordingly, the Pelagian state and the Pelagian church form a common front to destroy every trace of the Christian state and the Christian church. The common goal is one world order in which the dream of Pelagius, man's perfectibility by man, is realized. Because the Pelagian church believes more and more openly in man as his own God, it moves from a sliding of God to the attempt to abolish God and to proclaim the death of God. The Pelagian Church, like its state, is essentially totalitarian. It is its own god and law. Pelagianism is no less apparent in the academy than it is in the church and state. Education today is largely applied Pelagianism. Education in this perspective becomes a program of salvation. Through education, all man's problems will be solved. Knowledge is power, and the educator is thus the key to the social regeneration of man. The Pelagian school sees ignorance, not sin, as man's basic handicap and problem, and accordingly it seeks to remove this impediment. Man must be awakened out of his ignorance to the vast world of his potentialities. The school is the institution whereby man can enter into his godlike powers and master himself and the world. The Pelagian school is thus hostile to the Christian state and the Christian church no less than to the Christian school, and it seeks their destruction. By alliance with the Pelagian state and church, it works to create paradise on earth. But Pelagianism infects every sphere. The artist believes in the regenerating power of the aesthetic experience. The Pelagian women come to believe in the power of their sex to save mankind, and feminism is the result. The economists have plans whereby monetary trickery will create perpetual prosperity and so on. Plenary ability means plenary planning, plenary controls, and plenary tyrants and tyranny. The social and historical consequences of Pelagianism have always been disastrous. In the name of exalting man, man is debased by these planners. The doctrine of the sovereign grace alone provides a bulwark for liberty. For sovereign grace, faithfully believed and applied, means also a sovereign restraint upon man's pretensions. To God alone belongs dominion. Either God predestines or man and the state do. If God is not sovereign, the state will be. The foundations of liberty are laid with Augustinian materials. It is either Christ or the state. A man cannot have two masters or two saviors. The triumph of Pelagianism is always the enslavement of man. Even as subordinationism was a compromise which surrendered Orthodox Trinitarianism, even when closest to it, so the Council of Orange surrendered the, the doctrine of grace by compromising it, even as it defended Augustinianism to a large degree, truth is exact and precise, and the slightest departure from the truth is the substantiation of falsity for truth. The long canons of orange are on the whole excellent, but they are compromised by the element of error.